G'day, this is Mark Pesci, and welcome to Series 8 of This Week in Startups Australia. has changed completely, all within the space of a single month. At the start of March, coronavirus was still something that was mostly over there, safely out of mind. And now, now the global economy has ground to a halt. International borders are closed. Tens, possibly hundreds of millions find themselves out of work. And perhaps a third of the planet is under some form of lockdown. It sounds like fiction, but we all know it's true. So how do we come to grips with the biggest event? Not just health, but economic, diplomatic, social, that any of us have ever seen in our lives. Welcome back to a Twister series unlike any that has come before. In this news special episode, we take a look at the startup landscape here in Australia and grapple with how much has changed, what it will be like for the duration, and what we might expect to see in a post-pandemic startup land. The unimaginable present meets an uncertain future on this episode of This Week in Startups Australia. Series 8 of This Week in Startups Australia is proudly sponsored by the University of Technology, Sydney, driving the next generation of entrepreneurs. UTS is equipping a new breed of startup founders by inspiring students to launch their own venture and build the foundation for a successful career. To find out more about entrepreneurship at UTS and the UTS Startups Program, go to startups.uts.edu.au. It's our good fortune to be joined on this Twista News special by two of Australia's ecosystem leaders. Joining us for the first time on This Week in Startups Australia is a woman who is herself quite a legend in Australia's startup ecosystem. Cheryl Mack was the CEO of Starcom, which was one of the first big startup conferences here in Australia. It's one that really set the stage for Sunrise, for Above All Human, for Launch Sydney, and on and on and on. And so the fact that we have a lot of great startup conferences in this country, that is a sign of Cheryl's hard work. And these days, she's National Head of Community and Communication at Stone and Chalk. Welcome, Cheryl. Thank you very much, Mike. And it's my pleasure to welcome back a frequent guest on our Twisted News specials, Rescue Mike Nichols, General Partner at Main Sequence Ventures. Welcome back, Mike. Hey, good to see you, mate. Okay, question one, which is the question on everyone's minds. What is happening to Australia's startups? It feels like everything's changed very quickly. Everyone's starting to adapt. We know that there have been a huge number of layoffs and startups in the United States. That just came out on Crunchbase this week. What's going on, Cheryl? What are you seeing from inside Stone and Chalk? Yeah, so uh, I think there's divided up into three categories at the moment. Uh, there's the few that have uh, have already seen a pretty big decline and have had to make some pretty tricky decisions. Uh, I would say that's maybe around 20%. Uh, there's the vast majority that haven't really felt the full effects yet. So we have had a lot of, of founders say, look, 
you know, we're still kind of business as usual. We're working from home. Um, you know, we haven't seen a huge uh, effect, uh, but there's a bit of like kind of hesitation there because they're not sure, like, is it still coming? And, you know, I, I hope it doesn't, uh, but the reality is I, I think that it will and it might just take a little bit longer to hit them. And then there's the few, and that's a very small few that are actually thriving in that sense right now. Um, when those are ones that you would expect, you know, healthcare, uh, delivery services, uh, anything that helps people collaborate online seem to be thriving. Uh, but again, I think we're probably going to see that bottom out or maybe, I mean, I guess hit a peak at some point where that isn't going to continue in the super long term. And they're probably going to feel some sort of an effect as well because the entire economy has been hit. Yeah. I mean, what, what rises eventually will fall back to earth. Yeah. Again, I hope, I hope that, you know, they can really take advantage and get to a place where, you know, that isn't the case and that they're strong, but we'll see. Mike, what are you seeing? Well, look, I guess um, uh, two things. I'm not seeing any major layoffs yet, but I'm, I'm, I'm sure they're coming, but I'm just not seeing any just yet. Um, I am seeing early evidence of startups and founders who were in fundraising mode um, smaller ones that are pulling the pin and looking for consulting work or looking for jobs. Mm. Um, so I am starting to see early evidence of that. Um, I think everybody was sort of holding their breath for the job starter allowance um, or job keeper allowance, sorry, um, that was not originally scoped to include startups. But then there was some talk that maybe it would include startups and it's still not 100% clear about that. And I think they're waiting to see what the, um, uh, the clarification or the discretionary component of that is from the treasurer or the ATO. And so that's still not clear what that is. I mean, is that if a startup is more than 12 months old, though, it would be covered by JobKeeper, wouldn't it? Just so we'll walk through this scenario. So if you look at the original documents behind this, it was if you've had greater than 30% reduction of revenue. But if you're a pre-revenue startup, that can't be true, right? And so if you're also a high-growth startup, where, for example, you might have done $100,000 last year in your first year of operation and now you've done a million, you've scaled up, you've put on 20 staff or whatever, and then all of a sudden you're back to half a million. Technically, you still look pretty good on the year before, but you've had to fire a whole bunch of people. And if the policy intent was to try to keep people in jobs, it fails in that instance. And so, um, uh, you know, not to criticise the policy because I think it's an amazing job what they've done to pull this whole thing together in a super short period of time. I mean, you can just imagine, right, normally it takes months, sometimes years to get a bill through Parliament, and they've pushed through a truckload of bills in the space of, you know, a week and a half, two weeks. It's just an amazing effort by all the politicians yeah. and all the um, uh, the industry, uh, what do you call it, the, um, uh, the departments and the public servants behind that. So, so it's still not clear what's happening with job startups for startups, and I think it's going to be a case-by-case basis. Um, We've got some startups that are going gangbusters. Coview, for example, has got the um, original J-curve where they're basically the growth has literally gone exponential through the ceiling. It's literally the growth rate is standing straight upwards. Um, and what do they do that's making that happen? So they, they Coview makes uh, telehealth software. Uh, they've got an online telehealth platform which is specifically designed for um, uh, for, for uh, physicians, for uh, doctors, for uh, allied health, for hospitals. And so you can share you know, things like x-rays or you can share um, you know, medical documents. You can have a, a patient, the doctor scenario. You can have you know, 10 
um, specialists all looking at something from remote, remote scenarios. And so that has just gone through the roof because they've almost become the default um, uh, telehealth platform for Australia and they've got a whole bunch of overseas action coming in as well, customers coming in as well. So that's been really interesting. There's a bunch of others that are going, well, I think we'll see some pre-revenue, not necessarily ours, because I think most of ours have got, you know, sort of 12 to 18 months worth of runway. But I think we'll start to see in the general startup community, um, some of those startups will start to lay off people over the next month or so once they realise we're not going to get um, a JobKeeper um, uh, allowance and this looks like it's going to go for longer than what we thought it might. Um, everybody will start to work out, well, how do I make this last until end of financial year next year or or longer? So one of the things that Jason talked about during the interview with him yesterday was that, in fact, some founders hadn't gone for enough runway during their last round because they wanted to get the best possible valuation and that this was now seen in hindsight as being a very poor decision. Are we starting to see how yeah. that that sh- that short termism is actually, in fact, affecting the viability of startups in Australia? Look, I um, uh, a startup which both you and I know, and I won't mention the name because that'd be really bad form. Um, but they originally came to us last year with a what I thought was a very very premium valuation, and I really liked the team a lot, and I really wanted to back them, but it was so expensive that I just didn't feel I could. Um, and the valuation that they've managed to get a deal at now is half what it was wow. four months ago. Are you seeing the same thing at Stone and Chalk now, Cheryl? Um, well, I would maybe just correct you uh, on that initial statement in terms of saying, you know, that being a really poor decision. I, you know, I wouldn't say that. I think they made the decision that made sense for them at the time. I agree with that. that yeah, the, sure. The doing, that, yeah. I did think they were too expensive, but they did. You know, yeah. They, it's not like they were doing the wrong thing. It's just the situation yeah. changed. But even other startups as well, other startups that, you know, uh, a couple months ago raised at the smallest amount, like that is generally the advice that you want to give them is to say, like, when you are trying to raise, you should raise the smallest amount that will get you to the next milestone that changes your valuation. That way you're not giving away too much equity. But of course, that's very subjective and it's uh, yeah. almost an art form. So I wouldn't say that if they did that at the time, that was a poor decision. It just market timing has meant that that wasn't the best decision in hindsight. So I just want to say that. I don't want to tell startups that they're all, you know, you made a bad decision. <laughs> Normally we look at sort of advising them to take, you know, as you say, what's the next meaningful milestone, but usually it's about 18 months worth of money um, because most of our, um, our companies are G-Tech startup companies. They don't necessarily launch a product day one yeah. and you know, <laughs> keep pushing software Many of them are making hardware. Many of them are doing other things which are a lot more technical. So it takes a fair bit longer. So we normally sort of look at trying to keep them raising 18 months, sometimes two years worth of money at once. Yeah, it's definitely different, I think, for, for med techs. Um, yeah. Look, I would say in in terms of like our portfolio and, and a lot of the startups in my network, uh, you know, they're trying to conserve cash as much as possible. I think the tricky ones were the ones that, you know, weren't really – in dire need. They had, you know, a bit of runway and they had a bit of cash and had customers coming in and were growing customers. And we're thinking about doing a raise sometime in the next six to 12 months. And we're just kind of starting that process casually. Uh, And then of course this hit, right? And so now they're in a tricky position because it's, 
It's a matter of, well, do we rush the raise and do it right right now? Or do we take what we have and try to extend that cash as much as possible? And at the same time, they're concerned about potentially losing customers. They've got staff working at home who now have kids who may not be able to work as hard as they used to. So they're dealing with a lot of different things. And I think that question of whether, like, should I raise now or should I try to stretch my cash for 12 months and then try to raise later? Uh, you know, I don't know if there's a if there's a hard and fast rule on that one. Um, you know, I've talked to a Particularly lot of Particularly not right now because there's too much change right now. Yeah. Like there's, yeah. There's, I mean, it's, it's, there are... the, the, lots of people have, you know, lots of VCs on Twitter have said it's business as usual. And I think, mm, yeah, really? That doesn't seem likely. Now, you might be answering your emails and you might be, um, you know, talking, seeing pictures, but are you actually actively writing deals as aggressively, aggressively as you were in January? And the answer is probably not. And so, um, you know, I think that's going to be slowed down for a while. I think every VC is initially looking, is my current portfolio safe? Have we safeguarded them? Is there anything we need to do to triage them to help them through the next? If there's some of them that have a short runway, what do we need to do to help them raise or what do we need to do to help them cut down their costs to extend that runway? All right, so that brings us to our next question is how do we know when and how it's time to hibernate the startup? Not to, not to close it, but to hibernate the startup. Now, just before we recorded this, Alan Jones posted to Medium about the fact that they're taking mate ventures, which they're in their raise for, and they're going to hibernate it until conditions change. And he explained in detail why this was. Um, I know, Mike, that you kind of don't agree with the entire idea of hibernating a startup. You, do you well, I just, I just think, uh, in my opinion, hibernation's for bears, not for startups. And so, um, you know, what happens in my view is the moment passes, the market moves on. Um, you know, what seemed like a great idea in 2019, maybe in 2021, it's just not going to make sense anymore. And so in, what ends up happening is the founder has to survive, they have to eat. And so if they can't fund themselves, if they can't work out how to survive in their current scenario, pay their bills, eat and so on, they'll end up working for somebody else and they'll end up as part of somebody else's plan. Now, they may break away another day, but I think, you know, Markets have, uh, if you like, a cycle where there'll be a certain um, a technology set or business model idea that is current for a period of time. It's hot right now. People are going to fund it. In two years' time, three years' time, they're, they're not going to fund that idea uh, or they may not fund that idea. And so um, it, it seems that the hibernation idea, yes, you may um, shut down your desire to um, start up for a while, um, but I don't think you're coming back with the same idea necessarily unless it's something which is super long um, uh, time frame, super huge goal that nobody else has managed to execute and you don't see people that are with those visions very often. So, What do you reckon, Cheryl? Uh, I take a slightly different view. I think Mike is absolutely right if you're at that very early stage, but with startups that are a little bit further down the track, they're already in market. Uh, for example, and I think it also depends what industry they're in. So for example, uh, we have quite a few travel tech startups in Stone and Chalk. Now, oh boy. They've, well, no, I mean, it, look, it's, it's, it's not the worst. So like, here's the scenario, right? They've got a, a few, you know, B2B customers already. They're paying customers. 
they, you know, those customers have signed contracts, so they're not going anywhere. Um, they're still interested in, in the software and they still want to use it. Uh, but there's been a decline in, you know, travel globally, right? So does it make sense for them to go out and chase new customers right now? No, no one wants to talk about travel right now. Does it make sense to maintain your current customers and kind of, I, maybe hibernation is not the right word, but like, I guess not chase aggressive growth and maintain your current customers. You know, maybe you can reduce your costs. So you're just, just running the fixed stuff uh, and then look at scaling and growth and customer acquisition when the industry starts up again. I think that yeah. makes a lot of sense. So, so I, I, I agree with that. I, I think of that more <laughs> as going to survival mode versus hibernation mode. And so how do I extend the runway long enough? How do I keep my customers paying? I mean, what we haven't experienced yet, and I've seen this back you know, in, in previous recessions, um, we haven't experienced the point yet where the businesses stop to pay, stop paying each other. And when they stop paying each other, what ends up is happening is a cascading arrangement where nobody ends up paying anybody, um, where staff stop getting paid, payroll gets missed, where you have a situation where you can't get money off anybody they won't give money to you. They're hoarding cash. Everybody's holding on to it. The whole system's frozen. So the people in the travel space, they may have good intentions today about staying as customers, but they actually may not be able to pay the bills in three months' time. Um, you, know, you look at Travel World, uh, not Travel World, so what's Screw Turner's thing? Flight Centre. 800 stores closed in one week, 10 days yeah. ago. It's just incredible, right? Yeah, I mean, same Qantas. Stood down 20,000, right? And, and we now have Virgin going for basically a loan guarantee so that they can also stay afloat. All right. You know, you talk about these sudden changes, these sudden layoffs. We now have to take a look at our hubs. Like we had built the beautiful hub. We had built the Sydney startup hub. We all worked there. It was beautiful. It was wonderful. I used to record this show there. The building is entirely closed. We've all fled. We have to because it's too dense. All of the reasons that it was a great place to be are all of the reasons why we can't be there right yeah. now. Cheryl, you are at the heart of one of the key hubs in that building. Building. What's going on? Yeah, so Stoner Talk took the earlier than most decision to uh, to close down our physical operations in that sense, um, mostly to protect our staff and to protect the startups that worked within them. Um, that doesn't mean that we shut down all of our operations in any sense. Um, it just meant that we shut down the, the physical stuff, right? The desks. Um, and we took a lot of precautions leading up to that. Uh, so we, we did that, I think, earlier than most. And, you know, we also made the decision to provide our residents um, with three months of, uh, we waived their fees for three months, essentially. Uh, so that was really just to, thank you. <laughs> wasn't, you know, that wasn't entirely me. Um, it's a great initiative. Yeah, I mean, like, look, we, we know that they're going through a tough time and they were making some tricky decisions around their own staff and their own costs and their own priorities. And we just didn't want to be another one of those decisions for them to make. Um, you know, Stern and Chalk is a not-for-profit and we exist purely to help startups uh, commercialize and to help our corporate partners connect and innovate with those startups. So it, it was actually a fairly easy decision, I think, for us. It just, it made the most sense. Um, I can't speak for the other hubs. Uh, I know that they're all doing the best that they can as well. Um, you know, we've had great relationships with the other tenants in the hubs um, for a long time. So, you know, I, I really genuinely, um, yeah, I hope that they're, that they're, 
doing the right by their startups. And I'm sure that they are. I know that uh, Fishburners has launched a virtual um, paid membership that anybody can access, which I think is pretty cool. Uh, we're focusing purely on our residents. So our virtual membership is uh, just for our residents at the moment. And I'm pretty excited about that because I got to launch that. <laughs> And I've already been approached to become a mentor, even though we can't all get together and meant together, right? I mean, <laughs> so that the, the show does find a way to continue now. It does. It absolutely does. Um, what's interesting is you have all these companies that originally, you know, six months ago, oh, you know, we, we could never allow you to work from home. Oh, you know, security issues. Oh, the VPN. Oh, you know, productivity. Ah, yeah, this, that, that. Suddenly. Yeah. yeah. So I, I have you know? a question. Will commercial real estate and shared workspaces ever be the same again? Does anybody think we're going back to the same pattern of working? No. Does anybody think the virus is going to cooperate? Will it just go back in the box? I don't know. I mean, I I genuinely don't think it will be the same, but I also think that uh, co-working and flexible, maybe not co-working specifically, but flexible workspaces will absolutely come out on top over this. Like the, the... crushing like weight of the physical like real estate space and that market has just been put under immense pressure and it's become really really obvious the flaws in this system like everybody is trying to get out of their rent right now and everyone is freaking out so when we come back there's going to be a lot of really nervous and risk averse people who are going to want more flexible options so if you were a promoter of such a a workspace for example one of the tenants inside of the um, startup hub would you, knowing what you know now about what a pandemic can do, and I think Mark, you were saying earlier, on the scale of sort of 1 to 10, the pandemic is actually 20 in the uh, ability to kill the, um, the economy, <laughs> would you actually sign up as a lead um, uh, tenant to run a workspace like Stone & Chalk, for example? Um, could you now take that risk? Will people actually do that anymore? Yes, I think the answer is yes, but with caveats like there will definitely be a much different lens on it and uh you know what's interesting is that part of my role you know i i only joined stone and chalk about eight weeks ago and one of the reasons that i joined <laughs> what a ride timing is everything <laughs> it was here's the funny part one of the reasons i was brought on was to help get us away from the physical desk. And they, you know, they gave me about a timeline of like 18 months to get us unstrapped from the physical desk and have, you know, our value be to our residents, not dependent on this kind of physical limitation. And then, you know, about uh, four weeks in this hit and they're like, so, you know, how we, uh, you know, we wanted you to do that whole, uh, get away from the physical space, virtualize everything within 18 months. That time is now about one week. Go. Go. So <laughs> I think a lot of us already had that frame of mind that like we need we need to we need to separate ourselves from this physical limitation. It's just that that timeline got sped up and that's cool. You know, we're startups, we adapt, we pivot, we figure it out. It's what I'm doing. It's great. <laughs> and and the the silver lining in this is that all of the hubs now will exist in both forms. They will exist as physical places and they will exist now as very large infrastructures for virtual community maintenance, building, learning, mentoring, right? So that we get that going forward because we are suffering through this. All right, you're listening to the Twisted News special and we will be right back with Cheryl Mack and Mike Nichols.
Developing entrepreneurial skills is at the heart of the student experience at the University of Technology, Sydney. UTS students are creating their own jobs and starting their own companies through the flagship program, UTS Startups. Within its first year, the program has launched more than 200 student startups, and they're just getting started. Equipping students with the tools and expertise to become entrepreneurs, then connecting them to industry partners and the startup ecosystem, it's all part of their innovative approach. UTS is connecting thousands of talented students to industry and works closely with a network of partners to match students and startups through their startup internship program. As a leading university of technology and Australia's number one young university, UTS is investing heavily in this future right now. UTS's inner city campus is also uniquely positioned in Sydney's thriving tech precinct to be the catalyst for digital and creative industries and the startup community. Join them on the journey building Australia's largest community of student entrepreneurs. Go to startups.uts.edu.au to find out more. Welcome back to This Week in Startups Australia's news special. We're talking with Stone & Chalk National Director of Communities, Cheryl Mack, and Main Sequence General Partner, Mike Nichols. All right, question four, trading while insolvent. Apparently, this hard and fast rule that ASIC enforces and everything else about companies unable to trade while they're insolvent. Every, apparently, the directors and the corporations are all getting a six-month reprieve on this because everything's a bit crazy right now. How do we feel about that? Is that a wise thing to do? I mean, that is kind of, that is, those are the guardrails of the way corporations work in this country and the way directors behave in this country. Who do you want to go first? Cheryl, would you like to go first? Uh, look, I'll, I'll say two things. One, I personally think that the way that um, insolvency and administration in Australia works isn't ideal. I really wish that there was a, um, I really wish that there was uh, an option for companies that are going under to file for something like Chapter 11 that allows them a bit of a window to figure their stuff out. Um, so I will say that. I'm, I'm not a huge fan of the, the way that it works in Australia to begin with. Um, so, yeah, that's what I'll say. Mike? So I'll make the comment. Um, uh, my inside counsel, Virginia Crawford, would be very happy if I said, uh, this is my disclaimer, I'm not giving you financial advice or legal advice. So, um, look, I think while there may be some latitude in the new world and, and in this uh, relief legislation, it doesn't mean it's a good idea. And so... Um, I don't think it's ever a good idea, really, but the question yeah, but, is, it, so is it I necessary think, now? Well, I think it's probably necessary for yeah. um, things to just stop from flooding the courts. I think the big problem that this relieves is it stops the courts being flooded with thousands of smaller claims. Um, but what I would say is you want to be really careful about this because I think it protects you against accidental trading while insolvent. But I think it's going to come back to bite a bunch of people. Um, where Not deliberate. Get, where, well, if, if deliberate they start playing or knowingly, knowingly um, uh, negligent or knowingly, um, uh, yeah. what do you say, uh, careless. Um I think it'll come back to bite a bunch of people, and I think people will make decisions that will be reviewed later on and judged as deliberate, and I don't think that'll end well for them. So, I mean, I would say that they're trying to reduce 
the court being slammed by insolvency petitions. Um, and so they've, they've given them that time. Um, but be really, really careful about this. Oh, me, I would just say we're not trading insolvent regardless and do whatever you have to take, whatever actions you have to take. It's not reasonable to say that we think this is all going to get better in two months, so I think we can last till then. I don't think you can say that with any sort of any sort of um, what do you say um, uh, confidence? Surety. Surety. Yeah. Um, there's no reasonable expectation that that is the case, and so um, I think you need to be really careful about it. And I would be erring on the side of caution, even if that means, as we said before, going into hibernation mode or whatever it may be. I don't think. In years to come, I think there'll be case studies around people that have acted carelessly or recklessly um, and, and will be hit with with actions um, because it wasn't accidental or it wasn't, you know, a, a, a byproduct. It actually ended up being somebody making a dumb decision. So if this is really then about keeping the court system from getting overloaded, really what this does is it allows the court system at the point you're ready to file saying... They get to say, okay, yeah, come back, come back, right? They basically they basically get to wave that on, not dismiss it, but they basically get to wave it on for a period of time so that they can regulate their own flow around this because goodness knows with the number of businesses that are actually just out and out closing right now, the court is already just from that natural flow going to be quite full on. Right? Yeah, I mean, there's very rarely ever winners out of the whole um, uh, administration Liquid, uh, liquidation insolvency process. I, I don't think I've ever seen a winner out of that. The liquidators. It's almost, it's the like, liquidators exactly, do It's like well the vampire it. squid has got you and that's the end of it. And so that might like, drag on for two years or whatever until the, the carcass has been consumed. True story. When we, when we successfully liquidated Moore's Cloud, the bill from the liquidators came, oddly enough, to the very penny of the oh, yeah. total value of the assets of the company at its point of liquidation. Well, see, that's like a surprise to me. I would have thought they would have thrown in an extra 10K or so <laughs> and made you pay it. <laughs> they, they might, yeah, they must have known. I, they looked at me and said, oh, he doesn't have a penny left to his name, not after that. <laughs> so, All right. Anyway, not a good idea. Don't do yeah. it. Yeah. Cheryl. I, I just wanted to add one thing that um, I've noticed that, uh, you know, what's interesting is that all of the uh, accounting and tax and the, the firms that are specialized in this stuff, uh, they are out there just handing out free time and handing yes. out free advice and free services at the moment. So like, okay. if I would just say that, like, if you do, don't, don't hesitate to reach out to these guys. Like I, I know quite a few of them that are really, really knowledgeable. And they're just like, yep, absolutely. We're happy to have, you know, we're happy to have a free chat because they're just trying to build good karma for when you have money again. Um, exactly. I, will, so. I will say we've had a couple that have approached us and one of them came to us and said, oh, I see you've still got some jobs on your job board. Um, just anybody listening, jobs.msec.vc, just in case you want to go have a look at that. Um, sorry, mate, just had to throw, throw a plug in there. You can bill me later. No, 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 we'll, we'll, put, that, we'll put that on the webpage as well, just so everyone can find it. So one of them came to him and said, oh, we've got all these people. You could use them. They'd be fantastic. And I said, well, have you got any ideas about what specifically they might be? And they came back and they said, well, you know, we've got these five people. They'd be ideal for this sort of role. This one, the partner, is $4,000 a day. And I said, these are startups and we're in a pandemic. $4,000 a day, that's what they're actually paying themselves a month at the moment. They're not going to spend $4,000 a day on your partner. Anyway, I wow. digress. <laughs> a little bit of colour on the side there, mate. 
All right. You're, no, still, is, you're still this, spellbound about $4,000 a day, aren't you? Uh, I don't know. I, ch I charge out at that rate, but not to a startup, for goodness sakes, because no. they don't have the money. Yeah. All right. Next question. Taking a bit of a global look, and, and the thing is, it's like, even just in the last week or so, it's sort of become the new normal. We've kind of all adjusted to the working at home, not going out, kind of eating every meal at home, maybe cooking every meal at home. I am convinced that the reason you can't buy pasta in this country is because every Australian male who doesn't know how to cook does know how to make spag bowl. And therefore, all of the pasta is being used to feed all of the people in Australia who can't cook. But let's take a look a further out. What has the pandemic changed forever? When, at some point in the future, the dust starts to settle a little bit, we start to go, okay, what are we doing now? How are we gonna do it? What has changed? Cheryl, what do you reckon has changed? Well, I think a lot of things have changed. First and foremost, we now have a whole new generation of people who have experienced an economic downturn. Like, <laughs> oh, no, yeah. No, not yet. They have like, they will shortly. Yeah, you, you know what I mean, right? But like people my age have gone through unprecedented growth up until now. Even the GFC in 2008, like I was too young. Um, to really experience Well, and it that, didn't so. really even hit here. That's the thing. Australians don't really have any experience of that. So, yeah. Yeah. So I think what we're going to see is we're going to see a lot of people who were, uh, you know, eternally optimistic are are not going to be so anymore. And we're going to have a lot more cautious people, which, you know, in Australia, you know, we're already a little risk adverse. I'm not sure that's going to be a great thing for our economy. So I think that's one thing. Um, another one is around the, the you know, the ability to deliver services virtually. Like um, Mike was mentioning that one of his startups that do telehealth, you know, what's interesting mm -hmm. about that is that up until like two months ago, you could not do telehealth if you were in a city. It was only available by like Australian law for um, rural. Yeah, and you know, they have all these- Yeah, yeah well, sorry, um, bulk billing. They didn't do bulk billing unless you're yeah. rural. Um, and now suddenly they've just pushed that through uh, after yeah. years of arguing about how it's unsafe and people will take advantage and et cetera, et cetera. So uh, I think some things like that, like you can't reverse that decision. Like that legislature is made, made now. Like we can't go back from that. So things like that, um, I think we're going to have a lot less fear in terms of government around that. And I think that's probably a good thing. Um, yeah. Mike? Me, Mike, go. Well, I, I, I think there's some positive to come out of this. There'll be some negative, no question. But I think we are seeing a, rever a, a, a resurgence of the desire to manufacture things locally. Amen. Nationalism, if you like, from a, from a manufacturing perspective. And I'm right behind that. You know that's my, my strong point. Um, uh, I'm constantly going on about it, especially things like medical devices, which we just haven't had. You know, we don't have the, the, the up-and-coming cochlear or the up-and-coming ResMed. Those companies are 30, 40 years old. Yeah. What, what is the next one? And we just hadn't done that. And for whatever reason, there hasn't been an investment regime to support that. And so I'm seeing a real openness from everybody around. Geez, we really need to do that now. And I think that's super positive. Um, I think there's going to be, obviously, travels. Travel's got lots of problems for a long time. Um, meetings. I think we can probably wipe out a bucket load of meetings, which are just a waste of time. You know, you don't need to have a face-to-face -face meeting for this or that or the other every, you know, every couple of times a day. And I sort of went to a scenario where I was doing less and less of that before, but um, um, they can really sap up your time. And, and they're great to meet face-to-face, -face, but at the same time, it's not super efficient. 
I personally think future taxation regime is going to be very, very um, different. I think we're going to have, I think the country is going to have to carry a much greater tax um, burden than it, than it has to carry to, to pay this back. And, um, you know, the, the people that are earning the money are going to, you know, be saddled with that. And you know, obviously, I'm, you know, we're all in that sort of situation where we probably do better than most. And so we are all going to have to pick that up. Um, I don't think there's any way around to that. I, I feel for the politicians who have to make this decision, I feel quite um, a lot of empathy for them because this is a really tough decision they've got to make over the next couple of months. Um, if they open early and they get it wrong, a lot more people are going to die. But if they open late and they get it wrong, then everybody's going to go bankrupt, hungry, destitute or die of other causes. But just because we delay that decision doesn't mean the threat goes away. I think it's still going to bubble around in various little pockets around the country. Like you've just seen Singapore and Korea uh, both have um, uh, flare-ups again. Um, at what point can you actually say we're open for business again? It's not obvious to me. I, I don't have a crystal ball on that one. So, yeah, lots of stuff changed there. And I, and I think the answer there is that open for business is provisional in a way that it wasn't pre-pandemic, right? It's open for business here and maybe not as open for business there. And if you're looking overseas, well, you know, my prediction is that the first international border that opens is going to be the Australian-New Zealand border because we both have done fairly well at flattening the curve. Sure. The countries trust one another's health systems. Yeah. And we're going to need practice with that because we're going to have to understand what it means to open an international border across the pandemic. And then we can learn, both health systems can learn how to do this right. Because if we do that, then we have a model for what we want to open to America, which is going to have its own set of problems, or open to Europe or open to Asia. But see, I think we're pretty safe with New Zealand, right? But then yeah. you know, the moment you, you hop on a flight to Singapore, it's all over. They've done a great job. It, it, they, the moment they open their hub, everybody from around the world comes back again. And so does that mean that the borders are closed forever? Or, or when do they not get closed? Because if we haven't actually experienced it and got the, the, the lurgy ourselves, at what point is it safe to go back in the water? Or does it mean that if you decide you're going to go to Singapore, you get tested a lot before you go, you present the results of that test when you get to Singapore, you get tested a lot while you're in Singapore, and then you present the results of that back when you land in Australia again. Is it, yeah. do we have enough infrastructure around it? And that means that there will be people traveling, but not nearly as many, and certainly not for pleasure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So do we, instead of taking off our belt and our shoes, do we actually just get a nasal swab at the security line? It's a question. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, you know, and here's your test kit, sir. Yeah, yeah. Take it behind. Take it behind the curtain. <laughs> we, we haven't seen this yet, but I think we will see it. Um, where every single airline gate has a, a thermal scanner that can yeah. tell whether you've got a temperature. Yeah. And if you've got a temperature, I'm sorry, you just don't get on the plane. Doesn't matter why you've got a yeah. you just don't get on. I, we're not there yet, but I think we will do. And I remember Hong Kong used to have something. Yeah, similar. Hong Kong, Hong Kong. I think Singapore, Korea has them. Shanghai, Shanghai. Yeah, yeah. A, a lot of places yeah. have them already. And I remember the first time I went through, I was like, "Really? That, that thing just—that's my temperature? Oh, that's yeah. cool." Um, so there's, there's a, a team down at uh, Cicada who have got one that can do multiple people at once from a distance um, as they're walking towards them, which. That looks pretty interesting. So I think that's pretty cool. I think, um, you know, to your point though, Mike, I think the whole point is around flattening the curve. So 
while yes, like, you know, we will, it, it will be a tough decision as to when we open the borders. I don't think we're going to eradicate it completely. I think it's going to get to a problem, point right? where I know, but I think we'll get to a point where it's like, okay, we've flattened the curve enough that if we start to let, if we let people travel, then yes, some will get infected and some will need to be hospitalized just like regular times when people travel and get hospitalized and they get better. And it will be a few enough people to not overwhelm the system. Um, yeah, so but I do think that there will be more screening. It repeat itself, but it does rhyme or something, so they say. If you look back to the, the Spanish flu, there were three major waves apparently that you know, led to massive death in the second and third wave, and they came okay. you know, months or years after each other. Um, so the question is, Unless everybody's had it, and I'm not promoting herd immunity here, by the way, at all, because I just thought that was... That's what the Netherlands are doing. Well, you know, I think it's a, it'll be an Britain, interesting social experiment. But allegedly Britain was too, and it, until everybody said, oh, no, that's a, not a great idea. Um, so if you, um, if you say that we um, can't escape it without catching it, at some point, you're never going to eradicate it out of the community. It obviously transmits too well. Not an epidemiologist, um, but it's it just... It obviously transmits very well. So if you can't eradicate it out of the community, it's going to continue to erupt at various points. And this is why I think that future for us is provisional. It's all going to be, we're going to be reading the epidemiological data a lot of the same way we read climate and weather data today. It's like, oh, it's breaking out over there. They're going to be busy putting that out for a while. And I think we will see national economies or just local economies shutter for a period of time when yeah. there's a breakout and Hot then spots, open again. And we zone, might actually get super good. Yeah. Yeah. We we might get super good at going, oh, two weeks at home, fine. I'll watch a lot of Netflix and then going back to it. So, Mark, I know you love, I know you love both the privacy um, uh, policies of both Google and Facebook. So what do you think of that huh. new tracing regime that they've got, the contact tracing app? It's actually a very clever design, but what do you think about that? So uh, here's what I think. Back in 2005, I wrote a paper which detailed how such a system would work using Bluetooth. In 2006, I actually implemented this system and showed it at the uh, ISEA, the ISEA conference in San Jose. Uh, we call the project Blue States. So what I think is that I know a lot about this technology and I did it as a way to show people that you didn't actually need to get them to explicitly state what their social network was in order to be able to divine what their social network was because you could just watch people as they were moving around. It's a very powerful technology. If we roll it out, Mike, and I do think we're going to roll it out, we yeah. have to be able to we have to be able to roll it back. And we shouldn't accept a rollout until we understand the sunset provision in it. All right. Cool. Last question. Can billionaires truly save us? So Jack Dorsey gave 28% of his net worth a billion dollars to help fund great work in COVID vaccines and treatment and all of this stuff. And we see Bill Gates who warned us all about this years ago and the Gates Foundation, particularly its medical arm is doing all of this great research. I heard that um, Mark Benioff actually was monitoring medical supplies as they were getting on flights to make sure they didn't get blocked on their way to California. So you actually see these, these billionaires kind of stepping in. So can the billionaires save us, Cheryl? Uh, look, alone, no. Absolutely. You can't just have a bunch of billionaires like, here, take some money. Um, that's not going to work. Uh, can they save the world personally? No. Can they work together and use their influence and their money to have an impact on these types of issues? Yeah, absolutely. And for the ones that are doing so, yeah, thank you. Like, 
you know, you've, you've probably made a lot of money off the average person buying the average thing off your average marketplace that has grown into something really big. And, you know, I think giving back in that regard to help save the world, it makes sense. Um, can any single billionaire save the world like Jack? Probably not, but I like that he's trying. And as long as it's coming from a genuine place, uh, rather than just here, take a check so that I look good, then yeah. I don't know, 28% of his income is a big check. Or that is a big check. Worth. If I had to give up 28% of my income, I don't, yeah. I would yeah. not do that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I'd Mike? Make, yeah, look, I'd make the point that um, hats off to them, salute them for their efforts. Um, there are so many people in this world right now that are critical of everything and unlocking people that are doing things like that. I think that's terrible. Those people should actually start pushing and helping, not actually hindering. And so I think it's great that they're trying. I think um, some of them will have some success in certain areas. Bill Gates has definitely moved the needle on a whole bunch of important health issues in third world. Oh, malaria. Absolutely. Malaria, he was working on malaria for 20 years ago. Infant, infant mortality. There's a whole bunch of yeah. them, but they're a year, decade <laughs> project, not a week project. Um, but I do like wealthy, motivated individuals skirting bureaucracy to bring solutions that they want into the world. I think that's fantastic and there should be more of it. If you want something and you're unhappy with the way it's doing at the moment, you don't have to be a billionaire either. You just might be unhappy about the people down the road that are that can't feed themselves. And so we've got somebody here in the local area called Hawksby Helping Hands who started off as an eight-year-old girl who said, why is that poor man eating out of a garbage bin? And the mother told him. And then the two of them have built this charity that's at the moment turning out tonnes of food every week to the homeless in the local area. So neither of them have got a, a dollar to rub together, but they've actually taken on a situation where they are, have changed the whole Hawkesbury zone. If you're in a lower socioeconomic scenario, if you're a kid that has parents that don't have any money, if you're homeless, they have changed that world for them. And so you don't have to be a bill to do it. And so yeah. all those people with knockers, they need to get off that and they need to actually start helping. Yeah. We will put a link to that organization on the webpage as well. What a great note to end on. Mike, Cheryl, thank you so much for your brilliant insights and for helping us find a way through an unprecedented time. As always, Mike, fantastic to see you and you as well. Thanks very much. Thanks, Cheryl. Cheers, guys. Big thanks to Twister Sponsors UTS. Their support makes our podcast possible. Thanks to Cheryl Mack and Mike Nichols for taking the time to come onto our show. Come visit our website at twistartupsaus.com. It's got everything. It's got all the shows, all the interviews, all the photos, and all the links to all the stories. So check it out at twistartupsaus.com. We'll be back soon taking a look at how two of the startups we've already featured on Twista are coping with the pandemic. Until then, this is Mark Pesci thanking you for listening to This Week in Startups Australia. Stay well and be safe. <laughs>